WPTF Tom Furnish here, live and in real time. We bring you the Tom Furnish Show here every night, Monday through Friday, from 9 until 10. And as I said, live and in real time, we try to bring you things that are entertaining or edifying. And sometimes it's a little bit of both that I can almost promise you. Well, I will promise you that tonight's show with our very special guest, one of my favorites, uh, I talked to him about two minutes before we came on the air and learned a couple of things just in those two minutes and was reminded of one of my favorite books. Uh, Joe Cadell reminded me of a book called The Leopard that I had planned to read again, and I'm now even more convinced, Joe, that I'll have to do that. How are you tonight, Joe? Pretty good. Have yourself, Tom. John, run Joe up as far as you can here so we make sure we hear him. Is that uh, Yesterday was the anniversary that I have called you to help us commemorate and, you know, that's one of the things I like to do. There's just about one historical anniversary a month, sometimes two, that I like to uh, commemorate and remind our listeners of. Maybe that's one of our functions, along with helping you keep your car running and checking your computers and so on, is to be reminded of a little bit of our history. And it was on the uh, date of June 28th in the year 1914 that uh, I... I believe the Pandora's box that we're still kind of uh, watching the stuff come out of uh, uh, was opened up. And so we've invited our our resident uh, military historian. Well, he's just historian. He's not just military to come and visit with us tonight and talk about the date that uh, was kind of the when the, the match was lit that set off uh, World War One. Joe, are you still there? Yes, sir. We'll get to talk about one thing tonight. I remember when I was teaching one, I was talking about the beginning of World War One, and one of the students had heard of, at least, uh, the uh, Guns of August. And he wanted to know why, if the war started on June 28th, uh, we were talked about the Guns of August. Weren't there guns in July? Weren't there guns in June? So maybe that'll allow you a, a little space to have something to explain tonight, uh, and why, why that happened. But uh, I'm going to hand you the ball as someone might have done to Charlie Choo Choo Justice many years ago, and let you run with it. Well, it's, um, you know, when I talk to students about the First World War, a couple things. The first thing is I point out that it's hiding behind World War II. I think that's one reason uh, a lot of folks don't know as much about World War I anymore, um, because when we, we look back, World War II is such a significant event, such a large event, that we forget about came before. We just we're, we're overwhelmed in the way with the historical data and with the importance of the Second World War. And and yet you'll have historians who'll tell you the Second World War was perhaps to some extent a continuation of the conflict that you had began in the First World War. Um, certainly, um, you can see the roots of causation there. Another thing is that I, I'd like to point out, and you, you said this about how the, the, the 20th century began with the, uh, the assassination on the 28th of June. That really is when when the world changed. It, it, it's impossible to really explain most events in the world today without going back at least to the First World War. Um, I remember when when nine eleven took place, and people were asking, "Well, explain you know Islamic fundamentalism. Explain uh, you know the, uh, the the roots of terrorism." And I said, "If you don't go back at least to the First World War and the breakup of the Ottoman Empire and." Uh, a whole host of, of other issues and, and, and events that set other events in motion, you're not really going to get much of an understanding. You, now, historians, we're always saying you've got to go back. We're always accused of, of saying you've got to go back and back and back to get, get perspective. Well, certainly in the 20th century, it's hard to explain most of the major events unless you go back and look at the things that 
that came out of the First World War. Joe, is it, would it be sensible in any way to say, if I said, that there was a kind of, and, only, and I would put that in quotes, a kind of stability in Europe uh, until June 28, uh, 1914? Mm-hmm. At the very least, perceived stability. Um, but yes, the balance of power, the concert of Europe, which had, Europe had not had a, a, a continental-wide war since 1815. You know, you'd, you'd had basically 99 years of peace. You had other you had the wars of German unification, the Crimean War, other wars, um, but nothing um, on the scale of, say, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, and largely because of the alliance system that had been created. Um, there was um, a certain um, a balance of power created by alliances. Um, the, the British had played a major role in this. Um, you know, years, uh, uh, some years ago, I listened to lectures by A.J.P. Taylor, who uh, explained that, that to some extent he could blame the United States for the First World War because we hadn't played a role in this balance of power. Uh, we were on the other side of the pond. We weren't really involved in European affairs, uh, somewhat isolationist, uh, staying out of, of, of European affairs. But we had become a major economic power and to some extent had eroded the ability of the British to play the role of the balancer. The British tended to decide with whichever alliance was the weaker to keep, keep the alliance system in, in, in balance. And that, that system started to come apart. One of the, the, the problem with that alliance system is that if, you know, it, if, if, if people called their bluff, uh, the alliance system would bring all the nations into, into war, which is what we see between June and August of 1914. And you know, in answer to your students' question, that that's really when the alliance system began to pull all the different nations in, as they have met their obligations, met their alliance uh, obligations, and, and joined the conflict. But it, up to a certain point, it had worked. The alliance system had it was a form of deterrence. It kept nations from going to war because if you went to war with one country, you knew you'd be going to war with a number of countries. And then 1914. That happened, and people you know, decided to go to war anyway, and that that's a problem. What, what about the role of Bismarck in managing the alliance system that he had helped create? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, people said that the problem with Bismarck's system was that the only person who could make it work was Bismarck, that it was uh, so complicated, it required such, um, uh, uh, shall we say, diplomatic dexterity to, uh, to keep the, the system going. That, uh, that only Bismarck could do it. Um, and his successors, particularly uh, the Kaiser and others, just didn't have the ability to, to play the system the way that Bismarck... He created this system which, which allowed Germany uh, to avoid the danger of a two-front war, uh, gave her the opportunity to, to, uh, to, to avoid uh, facing the, an alliance that would overwhelm her um, and play one nation off against the other. But it, 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 it failed after Bismarck was gone. And uh, that was, you know, Bismarck said something very prophetic once. Somebody asked him if he thought there was going to be a war. And he said, oh, undoubtedly. And somebody said, well, what do you think will cause it? And he's supposed to have said, some damn fool thing in the Balkans. <laughs> and I've always thought that was one of the more prophetic things that any, any statesman uh, in, in the early to late 19th century said. Uh, well, let's say, let me say this. Related to that, in, in, in my mind, and I'm probably yours, is the fact that Ed, at the point of one of the the other times in world history when things might have gone awry and maybe didn't, 
the president of the United States, I think I'm right about this, John Kennedy, uh, asked all of his uh, advisors and so on to read a book that he had just been reading lately, and it was called The Guns of August. Right. And I, I think when he made a speech about the the uh, the missile crisis, that there was a copy of the book lying on the desk so that the TV cameras could pick it up. Well, he, um, uh, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he formed a, a, a group, um, XCON, to really manage the crisis. And at one of the early meetings of XCON, he, he drew attention to uh, Barbara Tuckman's uh, book, which had just come out, The Guns of August, which described how all this happened, how miscalculation and um, uh, uh, yeah, arrogance and uh, stupidity and uh, nationalism all had come together to, to bring all these nations into war along with the alliance system. And you know, she entitled her The Guns of August. And he said, you know, he, he thought everybody needed to take heed of the warnings that were implied in this book. And he said, I just hope no one will ever have to write a book called The Missiles of October. And, of course, ironically, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, later did write a book about how they handled the crisis called The Missiles of October. But Kennedy was worried that they would have a, a similar uh, sort of a series of events which would lead us into war in 1962. He also supposedly gave... Um, uh, copies of the Guns of August out as, as Christmas presents to everybody uh, on his on his on his list uh, in December of 1962. Well, uh, maybe maybe we should. Uh, I think that they're a popular country group, but but the but the, the, the phrase exists without them. Uh, as we go to a break, maybe we will just. Uh, need to remember something that you will get to eventually. We, we may have to go to Sarajevo first, but for, for, for the month or five weeks after that, the, uh, the, the in quotes term, asleep at the wheel, might apply <laughs> to what, in fact, was going on. Uh, we're talking about the assassination of the Archduke Francis Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire on June 28, 1914. And I, I always like to talk about a Pandora's box, and one certainly was opened in one that we're still living with uh, in Afghanistan and in the Middle East, uh, indeed all across the, the Western world and part of the Eastern world. Dr. Joe Cadell is our guest tonight helping us understand that and helping us remind, helping remind us of where we came from. We'll be back. It is a Monday night. It is June the 29th, and it is one day after the 106th anniversary of the assassination of the Archduke of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Ferdinand, and uh, generally thought of as being the date that the, the, the match was led, that led. Well, Joe Cadell, are you there? Yes, sir. I can remember there was a book called The Long Fuse. Yeah, Bottle of the Four. Maybe that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about... Uh, various professors that we knew who taught courses on, on this particular topic in this period. And it was interesting, always the different theories that you got, like you mentioned before, and you got Margaret McMillan, you got A.G.P. Taylor, you got all these, and the, all the different theories. And I try to get that across to the students, that there's, over time, people have pointed to different factors. Um, we were talking about the collapse of the balance of power. Uh, Mar Margaret McMillan uh, has, has written on this. Um, but others, you know, the Versailles Treaty, we blamed the Germans, uh, or the French did. The French and, the, and to some extent the British 
uh, you know, put the, the guilt uh, you know, the, on, on the Germans. And that's kind of the aggression by the Central Powers. We blame the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, and so forth. Um, a guy named Albertini, you know, he, he argued shared culpability. You know, there was enough blame to go around. Everybody, you know, and you said asleep at the wheel. Everybody shared in this uh, miscalculation. Others have pointed nationalism. I think that's one of the things we, when we talk about the importance of the First World War, uh, the collapse of the, uh, the Russian Empire, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Nationalism plays a role there. Um, some people point to industrialization. That industrialization played a role. The arms races before the war, everybody was arming to the teeth. Um, some people point to militarism. Um, you know, there was almost a, a, a desire to test out these, uh, the, you know, new military technologies, um, war plans of mobilization, war by timetable. All the nations had, had, not only did they have these alliances, but their militaries had worked out mobilization timetables geared to offensives, that when the war began, they were immediately going to attack uh, in such and such a, a direction, in such and such, and such uh, a, a time period. The Schlieffen plan that brought the, you know, the Germans through Belgium which, of course, brought the British into the war. Um, way back when I was in high school, I remember hearing, you know, the haves versus the have-nots. That's pretty much been discredited. But the idea was that, you know, the, the, the Allies, you know, were the haves, and the Central Powers were the have-nots. Well, that doesn't really work, because the Russians were certainly not a have, and Germany wasn't really a have-not. So it didn't, that didn't really work. But imperialism, I've always been interested in the idea that... Um, they didn't have enough respect for war. It had been 99 years, and so they, they, they really didn't have enough respect uh, or maybe fear of what a war would entail. That they, just, they didn't try hard enough. That they, they didn't have enough uh, desire to avoid this. Uh, and then some people just say political incompetence. Uh, and again, of course, these all overlap, but it's interesting how many different things you can point to, all of which I think are... are fruitful to pursue because those are still problems today, that if you have this combination of factors, um, clearly you know, bad things can happen. Joe Cadell is our military historian and historian in general, and we're talking about the anniversary of the uh, assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, uh, who was scheduled to become the leader of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In fact, Joe, I, I sort of wrote myself a mental note to ask you tonight if we could do this. I don't think in all the times we've ever talked about the Archduke being there ready to maybe uh, maybe take control of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and maybe liberalize it a little bit, but we've never talked about, is it Meierling? Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. And uh, Rudolph? Yeah. Uh, that, that's an interesting story in, 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 term, in itself. And so that's, except for, for Meierling, the Archduke wouldn't have been the man. Right. And, of course, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories about that, that, that Rudolph didn't really kill himself, that it was a, it was a setup, that he was murdered, uh, and so forth. This was the, the son of, of, the, of, of the emperor um, who would have been next in line. And uh, he... Um, Rudolph was an interesting fellow. He was also a reformer, had all kinds of ideas. He wanted to give more authority to the Hungarians. Uh, he, he aggravated his father a great deal. Um, but, you know, uh, um, but the Archduke was also a reformer. Uh, yeah. Some people say that's one reason that the, uh, 
uh, assassins wanted to um, to take him out there in 1914 was because he was a reformer, and and the you know people who who wanted to break the Austro-Hungarian Empire apart, who wanted to overthrow Habsburgs, they didn't want to see a reformer who would come in and breathe life into the old empire. They didn't want to see a reformer who would come in and and perhaps extend, uh, rejuvenate uh, the power. Um, and so both both Rudolf and uh, Franz Ferdinand were were seen as as threats by some of the more radical elements, including the the Black Hand, the Serbian nationalist group, which assassinated you know Gavrilo Princip, the the nineteen year old you know boy who who kills the Archduke and his wife. Um, this that whole organization, um, for all kinds of reasons, wanted to kill the Archduke. One of them was just a symbolism. One of them was a symbolism of killing, you know, the heir to the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman, sorry, Austro-Hungarian Empire throne. But also uh, uh, the, the, the idea that he could be a more dangerous ruler than than uh, Franz Joseph, who was the emperor. Well, one thing, Franz Joseph was not going to move too fast anywhere. I want to remark uh, that I once read a book that I enjoyed a great deal, and I, I think the man who wrote it was Frederick Mount or something like that, but it was called A Nervous Splendor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about uh, Meierling and, and Rudolph and, and the intellectual currents of Vienna mm-hmm. uh, circa 19, 1914. And it's Frederick Morton on, on Nervous Splendor, 1888-1889. He looks at that one year, and you've got Freud, you've got You've got all these people living in Vienna. Vienna was a, you know, it's such a, a, a cultural um, and uh, as well as political capital, and all the interesting things that are happening there. But yes, he covers Meierling in some detail. But um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's just an interesting story. This whole whole thing is, and, and like you said earlier, it's uh, you're looking at a, a way of life and a culture that was going to be destroyed by the war. And so, it, it, you know, it, you, know you, <laughs> you, almost, you almost make fun of the people who say these are the last golden days of peace and the last days of, of the old, you know, almost, almost the same way the French Revolution, people talk about the Ancien Regime, what, what came before, and it's uh, totally different from what came after. And the same is true of the First World War. And, uh, and the, the map was different. It yes, just sir. It was totally different. And, yes, sir. And it's the one that we are familiar with and one that... Uh, it turned out was uh, well. It seems like to me that in certain cases it was made or remade in a way that uh, was not necessarily appropriate, and we're paying for a lot of right. that even even it's today. It's still on a flux. I want to stop us right here for a moment because the news is right around the corner, and we can find out what's going on in the world today. Dr. Joe Cadell, who teaches history at the University of Chapel Hill and at NC State University, I think I'm still right about that. I'm yes, not sir. Joe. And. Uh, uh, he's been with us for, oh, 30 years as our resident historian. He's talking to us tonight about the, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. 933 Radio 680 WCTF. Tom Kearney, live and in real time with Dr. Joe Cadell, professor of history. Uh, I, Joe, I haven't uh, likened you to a Chaucer scholar in a long time, but... Uh, I think it's fair to say that my colleague, Dr. Cadell, gladly would he learn and gladly would he teach. And he's teaching us tonight about the uh, the events that led to the beginning 
of World War One, uh, why the guns of August can be imagined on June 28, 1914, five weeks before they, they began to fire. Dr. Cadell, is it worth talking about the, the, the comedy of errors that led to the actual shooting of the, the Archduke and his, uh, yeah. And his wife? Yeah, the, this, um, this organization, uh, the Black Hand, uh, you, know, the, the, you kind of have to explain the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Is a the term polyglot is often used. It's a, you know, it was a, an empire comprised of all these different nationalities: Austrians, Hungarians, Czechs, Slovaks, Slovenes, Montenegrins, Croats, Serbs, you know, Romanians, you you, you you name it. And what they all had in common was they they didn't, many of them didn't like each other, and they resented being under the rule of these uh, Germanic Austrians, uh, the Habsburgs. And the Hungarians in particular, you know, they had their own uh, sense of, you know, the idea of a dual monarchy, the idea that Hungary should have an equal role to play in the, the governance of the empire. And of course, Franz Joseph, who'd been in, he'd been in office since 1848. He'd actually been, been, been the emperor um, for most of the 19th, 19th century. It seemed like he was going to live forever. You know, we talk about Meierling and now Rudolf kills himself or was murdered, whichever. Um, well, he, one thing people said, he got tired of waiting because uh, his father seemed like he was going to live forever. Um, indeed, he lived until 1916. He died during the war. But uh, uh, this empire was uh, lots of different national groups. Uh, the revolutions back in 1848 um, had uh, uh, all over Europe, but especially in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, had shown the, the role of nationalism and breaking up these empires that can by nationality. The Austro-Hungarians had held together. Uh, Metternich, the great foreign minister, uh, had played a role in all of this, but um, uh, it, it certainly had instability. It was internal instability. They had economic problems. They had um, uh, political problems. They were just across the board. And one of the groups that really resented uh, Austrian control were the Serbs. Um, we've seen that in, you know, in, in the late 20th century with the breakup of Yugoslavia. That's kind of a continuation of all of that. But the Serbs had wanted um, um, you know, Bosnia uh, to be independent from the um, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And there was an organization called the Black Hand. They weren't the only group by any means, but they were kind of a pesky group. They went around, they blew up mailboxes, and they chopped down telegraph poles and um, they hadn't done anything on a scale of killing the Archduke. They were being funded by Serbia, an, you know, an independent nation on the border of Austria-Hungary. The Serbs had gotten a nation, nation state. They're on the on the edge of Austria-Hungary, wedged between the Austro-Hungarians and the Turks. And their secret service, under a, a guy codenamed Aspas, uh, his real name was Dragunovic, um, really a, a rather... A, scary fellow. He'd been involved in assassinations in Serbia, uh, all kinds of underhanded dealings, a, a true, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, if he's, if he's usually, most people who study him conclude that he's, he, 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 he's, a, he's, a, he's a dangerous man, and he wants to push them to do more uh, exciting things. And the Serbian Secret Service is, um, we use the term state-sponsored terrorism, the Serbian Secret Service is funding this this organization, the Black Hand, and trying to get them to do things. 
They find out that the Archduke is coming to Sarajevo to dedicate some buildings, uh, and they, they come up with a plot. Austrian intelligence actually de- detects the, the plot and warned the Archduke, but the Archduke really wanted to come. He really wanted to, to show. He was, he's also excited because it was going to be a rare opportunity for him to appear in public with his wife. His wife, Sophie, was a, a Czech aristocrat, and even though she was aristocrat, she wasn't royal. And so she was often excluded from a lot of the uh, uh, official functions. Uh, you know, the, the emperor, uh, Franz Joseph, uh, didn't approve of her. And so um, Franz uh, uh, Ferdinand was very excited that he was going to be able to take his wife and she could appear in these, fun- these functions with him. And so they, 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 despite the warnings, they go to Sarajevo on the 28th. Uh, when they get there, Almost um, one of the first moments in an open they're in an open car. They haven't been in town very long when there was the first attempt. A bomb was thrown at the car, and uh, it missed them. But some people were wounded, and um, uh, they went on to the first build to to to, to uh, the town hall. And then after they left the town hall, uh, the archduke said he wanted to go to the hospital to visit some of the people who'd been wounded, and it took them right past. Another one of the assassins, the, the assassins, after the first attempt, I mean, it, it was kind of a poorly planned assassination attempt in that they kind of had people, you know, all over the parade route to take shots at the Archduke. I haven't thought about it. If you think about it, if, if you make your first attempt, the parade is probably not going to continue, right? <laughs> it isn't like the Archduke's going to be in a shooting gallery and keep on on the parade route. And so some of the fellows who have, were part of this, this plot uh, were on the parade route, and they weren't sure what had happened. The, 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 the bomb had gone off, and there was confusion. And this uh, young man, Gavrilo Princep, was standing on the street. He apparently had gone into a, uh, a local bar or tea room, the Count Ferry, and came out uh, trying to figure whether or not he should just go home or um, uh, meet up with some of his other conspirators when a car pulls up. And as you mentioned, I think we were talking about this before, um, the driver had missed his turn. The driver who's driving the Archduke on his way to this hospital is coming down the street. He missed his turn, so he hits the brake, stops, you know, puts the car into reverse, and backs up and literally you know, is there um, just a few feet away from Gavrilo Princep, this member of the Black Hand, who had a revolver, jumps up on the running board of the car, and uh, empties his revolver into the into the back of the car, and he kills the Archduke and his wife. And again, you know, I, I don't think he had any idea what he had set in motion. Uh, well, I'm just always kind of amazed at all the, the sort of comedy of errors, because most today, for instance, when the bomb had been, the first bomb was thrown, they would have they would have said, okay, there's something wrong out there, let's don't do this anymore. Right. Uh, you know, and let's go home. And, uh, well, they did say that. But the Archduke over, overruled them. He said, "I'm going to, I'm going to go on anyway." And then, then they backed up. And when they backed up, he, he didn't even have to move his gun. I mean, he literally it was in the <laughs> line right. of, of sight right. uh, to, to, to be shot. And I suspect, given Pre, Prinkip was supposed to be not very good with a pistol, as a matter of fact, and so, uh, well, so, and you know, a pistol's not a long range weapon anyway. I mean, he, he, he was at point blank range when he, when he fired at them. And, um, uh, it, it's very sad. Um, um, you know, he killed, he killed the, the two of them. And um, now the the emperor is supposed to have said, 
later that uh, uh, his nephew, the Archduke, was more valuable dead than he'd ever been alive. That was the most useful thing he'd ever done because on the, the various assassins that they caught, they found enough incriminating information linking them to the Serbian Secret Service. Again, these guys were not very professional. They, they actually had, I mean, I don't think they had anything as simple as instructions on how to kill the Archduke, but it was pretty close to that. They had all kinds of paperwork on them that linked them back to the Serbians. And so um, uh, the Austrians were able to present this information to the Serbs and give them, I think it was an 11-point ultimatum, and uh, said, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, we, we're really, you know, uh, we cannot have this. What you've done is, is outrageous. Your Secret Service was involved in the assassination of our, of our heir to our throne. And the Serbs apologized. I mean, they were they were aghast. And it was, again, a case of... Uh, uh, I used to make, back in the Reagan administration, I used to make comparisons between this and Ollie North and said this is what happens when you have officers making their own foreign policy because, you know, Dragovich, um, the head of the Secret Service, it does not look like he had the, uh, the san- he was not sanctioned by the Serbian government. He was a loose cannon. And the Serbian government was horrified by all this information and realized the Austrians were furious. But when they looked at the ultimatum, uh, if they agreed to every one of these things that the Austrians uh, demanded, uh, Serbia would pretty much become a, a satellite of Austria-Hungary. It would give the, the Austrians the right to uh, con- conduct police investigations in Serbia. It would control their foreign policy. I mean, it was really going to bring Serbia under the thumb of the Austro-Hungarians. And so they, they, they had to refuse it. They, they tried to negotiate. They tried to compromise. But the Austrians were not going to yeah, they weren't having any of this. They insisted. They also, of course, turned to the Germans, their allies, and said, are you going to back us up on this? And that's when they got the famous or infamous blank check. The Germans said, you've got a blank check. We'll back you up with whatever you need. Because the Austrians are worried, of course, about the Serbs' friends, the Russians. And the Russians, you know, are the protector of the Slavs. Serbia is the Slavic nation. Uh, the Russians, you know, had, had understandings with the Serbs. And the Serbs had turned to the Russians and said, you're going to back us, and the Russians said yes. And the Germans said they'd back the Austro-Hungarians. Meanwhile, of course, the Kaiser and the Tsar, who are cousins, are sending each other telegrams saying, let's keep this under control. Let's not let this get out of hand. And unfortunately, it did get out of hand. So. Let's stop right here and, and take a break. Sure. And, but I will tell you that the importance of this is one of the questions on Double Jeopardy tonight, the answer had to do with the the uh, blank check in this, this mentioned, that you just mentioned in this case. So if we had this program beforehand, maybe somebody on the program would have gotten it right. A little tongue-in-cheek humor there. Dr. Joe Cadell is our uh, historian with an explanation of, uh, of the, how uh, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand on June 28, 1914 is going to lead to World War One and to the to, to the rest of the 20th century, a good bit of the history of the 20th century. Dr. Cadell, we're going to have a few more minutes after we take a break here, so we'll give you a chance to catch your breath. Uh, I need to talk about our friends at King's Auto, and then we'll be back. Uh, when servicing your car, you need to know what your cycle of service is. Your cycle of service begins the month that you buy your car. 
that cycle does not necessarily match with the normal seasonal changes. At King's Auto Service, they will schedule your service intervals based on that cycle. For those using synthetic oil or driving limited miles, you may go months without uh, needing the normal service based on those miles, and you will need to schedule your service uh, independently for two to three times a year. During your service, Kings will check wipers, belts, tires, and transmission fluid levels. For those of you who are currently driving a Toyota Prius or some other hybrid vehicle, the certified hybrid technicians at Kings are now able to refurbish your high-voltage battery pack for less than the dealer would charge to replace it. This replacement usually takes place at about 150,000 miles. Call Kings tomorrow to schedule a courtesy battery analysis. King's Auto Service and King's Correct Lube, easy to find at 1039 Northwest Street in downtown Raleigh and at kingautomotive.net on the web. King's Auto Service, Raleigh's most reliable auto care since 1946. The weather is Radio 680. Tonight we're talking about uh, uh, an anniversary, a commemoration of uh, the uh, event in 1914 that... Uh, led to the beginning of World War One, the Guns of August. And we've got five months, Dr. Goodell, for you to talk about and how they diddled during those five months. I think the the, the Kaiser went to the beach, if I remember correctly. And he went on a cruise, yeah. He, uh, he had a yacht called the Hole of the Dollar, and he went on a cruise in the Baltic. And uh, so he was actually you know, out of pocket. Um, and so it was uh, he, he wasn't there to, to rein in some of the policies. Um, in the case of the Austrians, they would continue to press the Serbians. The Serbians continue to, to look to the Russians. The Russians decide to mobilize, um, and the, the Tsar wanted to mobilize just along the Austro-Hungarian border, just bring his army you know, up to the uh, Austro-Hungarian border. But he had you know, something, you know, you know, something like 2.7 million Troops, but most of them were reservists. Who uh, it was this incredibly complex mobilization by train, and uh, getting all those train schedules and everything worked out to bring all those people to the right position, to the right regiments and battalions, and so forth. That was a very complicated system, and the Russian general staff only had one mobilization plan, and that was to mobilize from the Baltic to the Black Sea. They didn't have a plan for just you know, mobilizing across from the Austrians. And so um, the choice was mobilized completely or mobilized not at all. The Russians decided better safe than sorry, and so they mobilized, you know, literally, uh, you know, across the entire front. That alarmed the Germans. Um, the Germans uh, had responded with mobilization with the Russian army, army mobilizing to their east. Um, and, of course, their plan was to avoid a two-front war. They knew the Russians and the French had an alliance. And so they knew the French could mobilize faster than the Russians. France is geographically smaller. There's less territory to cover. Um, and so the, the French would be able to get their army mobilized faster than the Russians. So the German plan had been all along to, if you went to war with Russia and France, take out France first. And the plan was the Schlieffen plan, which involved the German army invading France from the north, coming in through Belgium. Belgium was neutral. Almost every country in Europe had guaranteed Belgian neutrality, including the Germans. 
And when the Germans violated Belgian neutrality by invading Belgium and coming down on France to the north, the British, uh, very much alarmed by the idea that the Germans would be across the channel from them uh, in Belgium, uh, and also believing you know, in the rule of law, they uh, told the Germans, they gave the Germans an ultimatum, get out of Belgium or, uh, or, you know, or else. See, the, Fr- French were, uh, the French and the British had some understandings, but no formal alliance. But when the Germans went into Belgium, that brought the British in. So the, the Austrians attacked the Serbs, which brings the Russians in, which then that brings the Germans in. The Germans attacked the French through Belgium, which brings the, the, the British in. It really is a comedy of errors. I mean, I've heard people... The word domino... Uh, it is, it is. ...appears in this somewhere. Now, I'm going to stop you right now because we have a little over a minute to go, and you know I love bibliography, so you're going to have to tell us one or two books that if we want to follow well, you've already up on mentioned, this, you've mentioned you've got us interested in it now. I think The Thrones uh, of August is still worth worth reading. I think it really is. Barbara Tuckman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N. Uh, Margaret Mellon, she's got a number of works. Uh, John Keegan has a, a pretty good general history of the First World War, very readable. So I'd recommend that as well. Um, um, any... Um, uh, we, you know, you've you've talked to Hugh Strawn. It's it's, it's, it's spelled Strachan, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N, but he calls it Strawn. Uh, he's written a, a, a general history of the First World War. Uh, he's been writing multiple volumes. I don't know how far he's gotten with the multiple volumes, but his one volume, History of the War, is quite good and has a very good section on causation. Right, I've I've read that one and I, I like that, and I think the other ones gonna have. Three or four volumes. In fact, I, I think I saw a uh, documentary today, part of it, that he was behind. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to stop here, Joe, but you've done a wonderful job again. We, we could we could bottle this one tonight and sell it if we could get away <laughs> with it. That's all. But thank you for, for being on with us tonight. It's my pleasure. Thanks for putting up with me, Tom. We'll talk to you later, Joe. Yes, sir. Take care. Dr. Thanks. Joe Cadell, history professor talking about uh, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the beginning of World War I. Tomorrow night we're going to talk about the weather with Rod Gonski.